Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca here on WMCK.FM Internet Radio in McKeesport. A service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. Podcasts of these shows are available on WMCK.FM slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. So welcome to the show. This is the Consumer Review Report where we deal with consumer issues. We'll talk about products and services, review some products and services, uh, things like that. So if you have any ideas on any products or services you would like to hear about on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any comments about anything that you have heard on the show or questions, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. All right, so here we are, another week. I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. I know it was an unusual Christmas, not only because of our Christmas plans regarding COVID-19, but also it was a very white Christmas around the area. I think we got about four inches of snow, so that was nice to see. But it probably would have been nicer to be able to get together with family and friends without uh, any restrictions. Uh, So we'll try to hope for a better new year for 2021, although I'm not sure how that's going to pan out, but (laughs) we can always hope, right? All right, so today I thought I'd do a show on a um, Consumer Reports magazine has an excerpt in their magazine called Ask the Experts. And I do this periodically uh, every now and again where I take those questions and I will put them on the air uh, because if those people had questions, probably everybody has questions about those subjects. So I thought I'd take some of those questions and talk about them on the show today. Uh, We'll be talking about laundry questions uh, health questions, uh, of course, coronavirus questions. And if we have time, there's also a security camera question that, that came into, uh, being that I thought was pretty important because we do talk about scams and hacking on the show as well. So, and we'll hear audio about different things as well. So let's go ahead and get to the first question. Again, these are all from Consumer Report Magazine, Ask the Expert excerpt in their magazines. And they have this every month. They have maybe three questions that people write in and ask about. And then the Consumer Report Magazine experts will answer them. So let's start with the laundry questions first. My front load washing machine smells funky. What can I do? You're not alone. Other CR members with front loaders have told us the same. This is the answer from Consumer Report Magazine experts. 
Electrolux, LG, and Whirlpool have each settled recent class action lawsuits involving allegations of odors and mold in front loaders, though the companies deny wrongdoing. The odor may be a result of residue buildup, and it could be that the rubber gasket around the opening of front-loading washers doesn't dry out properly. To help prevent conditions that lead to moisture and residue backup, clean your washer's drum. You can do that by either running your machine's tub clean feature, many newer models have one, or simply doing an empty load on the hottest setting with a cup of bleach. Between loads, clean the dispensers and leave them open to dry, and keep the washer door ajar, but never leave the door open with young kids around because they can trap themselves inside. After the last load of the day, dry the inside of the door and the rubber gasket with a towel and carefully clean away residue. GE now has a line of front load washers called Ultra Fresh that were designed to drain and dry better. So, uh, Consumer Reports also posted a video on YouTube pretty much describing the same thing. It's entitled, How to Get Rid of Front Loader Odor. Again, it was posted by Consumer Reports on YouTube. So, let's take a listen as to uh, what, what they have to say about that. Odors lingering in your laundry room? They might be coming from the very machine that is supposed to get your clothes clean. CR says there are some simple steps you can take to combat the mold and mildew that can cause those front loader washing machine odors. But first, the science behind the smell. Unlike top loaders, front loaders have a closed system. The gasket on the door seals in any moisture left behind after the wash cycle creating a friendly environment for odor-causing mold and bacteria to develop in front loaders. But how does the mold and bacteria get there in the first place? Let's ask CR's chief scientific officer, Dr. James Dickerson. If you're just here for a solution, skip ahead about 50 seconds and see our tips. Mold spores can be found almost anywhere, both indoors and outside. As you go about doing your routine activities, bits of food, soil, and airborne spores can land on your clothes. Naturally, you'll want to toss those dirty clothes into the washing machine, along with those microscopic spores. You may not realize that residual detergent, fabric softener, or lingering water that remains after a front-loading machine's washing cycle combined with leftover lint, pocketed tissues, matted hair, or other organic materials can provide the necessary conditions for mold spores to flourish. Unfortunately, there's no guarantee that you can prevent mold from developing in a front load washer. Your best bet? Follow these tips. Use only HE detergents. They're specially formulated for high efficiency washing machines, like front loaders. Skip fabric softeners and regular detergents, which leave behind more residue and residue equals mold food. And that's what we want to avoid. As soon as your wash cycle ends, transfer your wet clothes to the dryer. Run the tub clean feature regularly. Older front loaders might not have this option, so instead run the washer on a hot water temperature setting with a washing machine cleaner that contains bleach. And avoid using vinegar to clean your machine. With continual use, vinegar can damage seals and hoses, and front loaders may be especially susceptible, so skip it. D. 
degunk the gasket. This is where a lot of residual laundry lint and moisture like to hide. So carefully pull the gasket back and with a soft cloth or paper towel, clean away the residue. After the last load of the day, dry the inside of the door. Between loads, open the dispenser drawer and give it a chance to dry. And keep the door open or ajar so the drum can dry out too. That is unless you have young children around that can climb inside. And make sure your washer's level. Water won't drain properly if your washer isn't perfectly level. So check it every so often and make adjustments if needed. Finally, check the manual to see if your machine has any other maintenance tips specific for your model. If you're ready for a new machine, you might like to know that some high-efficiency top-loading washers are performing just as well as some top-rated front-loaders we test. You can get access to those exclusive ratings, peruse washing machine and laundry tips, and read more about the battle against washer mold, all at cr.org washingmachines. Okay, so there you go. There's your answer to any front loader odors. That's um, pretty funny. I like that rhyming <laughs> front loader odor. <laughs> All right, so here's another question. I'm sick of white clothes that get dingy in the wash. Help. So Consumer Report Magazine has answered this question. Most people know how to wash their whites separately from colors, but you may be guilty of other laundry sins that are causing your whites to go dull or gray. Overloading your machine, which causes tangling and prevents effective cleaning, is a common one. Add a few items at a time. This will allow all items to tumble freely in the water, giving the soil the best potential to disperse. Another common culprit, washing very dirty items with cleaner ones, which can spread the dirt around to all your whites, and resist the urge to economize on the amount of detergent. If you don't use the recommended amount for the size and soil intensity of your load, you won't get the benefit of detergent agents that help keep soil from redepositing on other clothes. If graying is still a problem, use a detergent with bleaching components or a mild oxidizing agent in powder form, such as OxyClean or Borax. It's milder than chlorine bleach and can be used with most whites, such as cottons and cotton blends. And now that warmer weather is here, this was when the uh, question was asked, I guess. It's not quite here yet. <laughs> but when warmer weather occurs, don't forget to harness the sun's bleaching power. Line drying clothes and sheets helps whiten them and cuts down on your electricity bill. All right, here's another question. How can I keep my black clothing from fading? Wearing black never goes out of style, except if your clothes are faded and covered in fuzzies or detergent streaks. The more you wash black clothing, the more dye washes away, especially with black denim. Before you toss your black garment in the washer, turn it inside out to shield it from agitation or tumbling of your machine, which breaks down the fibers in fabrics and causes them to appear faded. Some detergent won't dissolve well in very cold water, which can cause streaks. 
Use cool or warm water, generally above 60 degrees Fahrenheit, to help detergents dissolve and keep the fibers from losing their color. Too much detergent can cause uh, streaks, and so to be sure to measure out the recommended amount. And don't use detergents with bleach or bleach alternatives, which can discolor black dye. Last, set dark loads to the light soil setting. It's gentler and on the shortest cycle possible. Less time in the wash means less fading. How you dry your darks matters too. Tumbling in the dryer roughs up the surface of the fibers, creating a halo of fuzz that catches light and makes black clothes appear faded. Indeed, or instead, keep the garments turned inside out and hang them to dry indoors. Avoid drying outdoors where the sun can fade them. <clears throat> All right, so avoid drying outdoors where they recommend that you put your whites outside, keep your black, black clothing inside. All right, here's another question. What's the best way to wash and dry my gym clothes? Clothing that wicks away sweat is typically made of synthetic, non-porous fabrics that don't absorb sweat. That's how it keeps you dry as you exercise. The downside is that while your sweat evaporates, it leaves odor behind. Synthetic fibers act like a magnet for odor-causing chemicals in sweat, making them difficult to wash out. The chemicals in sweat, sebum, or body oil are very tough to remove. Try to wash synthetics immediately after a workout and turn them inside out so that detergent can easily get at the soils. Choose cold water on a gentle cycle to help prevent fading and preserve the fit. Hot water can damage the fibers that make them stretchy. And don't put them in with items made of heavy fabrics such as jeans. The friction can wear down more delicate synthetics. To clean extra stinky items, don't use more detergent than the directions call for. Excess detergent, excess detergent can cause residue to stay in your clothes and trap odors. Instead, use an extra rinse cycle and never use fabric softener. It can clog the fabric pores, inhibiting its wicking capabilities. Most experts also say to air dry and lay clothes flat to protect the shape and fit. Well, you know, I never realized about the fabric softener. I always used fabric softener on my uh, workout clothes, but now I know not to. I did not know it can clog the fabric pores, inhibiting its wicking capabilities. So I guess you learn something new all the time. I've always, always washed them on cold, but I didn't know that the detergent could also, if you had excess detergent, that maybe put an extra uh, rinse cycle or something in there. I didn't know about that either. So see, I learn right along with you guys. All right, here's another question. Are washers with a steam setting better at cleaning? Many manufacturers of front loader washing machines and some HE top loaders now offer a setting, and that's Electrolux's Perfect Steam and Maytag Steam for stains, for example, that adds hot steam to certain wash cycles with the goal of improving stain removal. To evaluate how steam affects cleaning performance, we tested, that's CR Magazine, tested five front loaders from brands in our lab, as well as one HE top loader and an agitator washer. 
Steam features are rare on agitator washers, which is why we tested only one of that type. We ran our usual washer performance tests, which include evaluating five hard-to-remove stains before and after a wash cycle. We then repeated each test, adding the washer steam options. The results? The steam didn't improve stain removal in our cleaning tests, but it did cause most of the seven machines to use more water than usual, and all of them used more energy. One washer steam option upped water consumption by 18 gallons and increased energy usage by almost 600%. Cycle times also were extended substantially on certain models. Instead of focusing on washers that offer a steam option, pick a washer that fits your budget and performs well in our tests. So they are totally not for the steam option settings on washers. So... There you go. All right, so I have a video that was posted by Natural Ways. It's entitled, Put Silver Foil in Washing Machine, and you'll be amazed at what happens. Now, I have not listened to this, so I will be listening to it as you guys are. But I'm interested in what is this aluminum foil supposed to do. So let's take a listen. If you're like most people, you use aluminum foil to line a roasting pan and cover your leftovers. You may even use a crumpled up piece of foil to give your pots and pans a good scour. But aluminum foil has dozens of other uses that can save you time and money. Here are eight easy ways you can use and reuse aluminum foil that will make your life easier. One, improve your Wi-Fi signal. If you're the one who's not satisfied with the speed of your Wi-Fi or want to increase your router Wi-Fi strength, then with aluminum foil, you can increase the strength of your Wi-Fi signals. Wrap foil to a rectangular cardboard. Curve it and place it behind the antenna of your router. This aluminum foil will reflect the wireless signals into the direction that you want it to be. 2. Fix a battery connection. Over time, the little spring that holds the batteries in place within electronics, such as flashlights, can loosen. Take a small square of aluminum foil, about an inch squared, and fold it a few times, forming a small pad. Place the pad between the battery and the spring. The foil will keep the battery in place while completing the circuit. 3. Sharpen your scissors. If you need to sharpen your scissors and get rid of rust, fold several layers of foil and cut smoothly through the foil, ensuring all the blade touches the foil with each cut. Repeat several times. Check the sharpness of scissors and repeat if needed. 4. Remove static electricity from your clothes. Have you ever noticed dust particles getting attached to your clothes while drying your washed clothes? This happens because of static charge. The simple solution is to put some foil balls in the washer together with the laundry. After washing, your clothes won't accumulate electricity and attract dust and hair. 5. Move furniture easily. Unless you're the Incredible Hulk, moving heavy furniture across carpet is difficult, back-straining process. Make the process a little easier with a bit of aluminum foil. Just stick it under the furniture legs, and it should drag across the carpet much easier. 6. Protect food from burning. In order to protect food from sticking in the frying pan, put a layer of foil at the bottom. This is also how you can cook without oil. 7. 
seal plastic bags. Fold a piece of aluminum foil over the opening of the bag. Make sure the aluminum foil covers the plastic you intend on ironing so the iron does not come into contact with the actual plastic. Now run the hot iron over the foil for a minute or two, allowing the plastic to melt and seal. Let cool and remove the aluminum foil. 8. Iron clothes from both sides at once. Put some aluminum foil under the clothes before ironing. Foil becomes hot really fast, and this is how your clothes can be ironed from both sides. <laughs> All right. Well, there was only two laundry uh questions involving the aluminum foil but all the other tips were kind of interesting too so what they were saying is put some aluminum foil balls in the dryer with your clothes and that will uh get rid of the static electricity so things don't stick on there now my husband has a habit of leaving tissues in his pockets so uh, that would be pretty good, and then I won't have to pick all the tissue, uh, little tissue pieces off of the rest of the clothes when I can't, I didn't find it in time, and they go in the dryer. So that's a, a pretty handy thing. I'll, I'll maybe try that. And then also they said ironing, right? You want to iron both sides, so you put some aluminum foil down underneath the clothing and iron, and and voila, you have both sides of the clothing ironed and saves you time. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> that was posted by Natural Ways on YouTube. So if you want to hear that again, you can go there. And uh, it was entitled, Put Silver Foil in Washing Machine, and you'll be amazed at what happens. All right, one more laundry question. How worried should I be about dryer fires? And Consumer Report Magazine answers, every year, firefighters across the country respond to nearly 14,000 home fires caused by clothes dryers, according to the National Fire Protection Association. In fact, dryer fires are responsible for an annual average of seven non-firefighter deaths and 344 injuries, as well as $233 million in property damage. And... 27% of home dryer fires are caused mainly by an accumulation of lint, which is why cleaning your dryer regularly is crucial. To prevent fires, clean the dryer's lint screen after every load. But don't stop there. Lint also accumulates in your dryer's vent, generally found at the back of your dryer, and the duct that connects the dryer to the outside vent. If your dryer takes longer to dry than it used to, it can be a clue that a vent may be obstructed by lint. Certain dryers have indicators to alert you to a blocked vent, such as LG's FlowSense and Samsung's Vent Sensor. But Consumer Report Magazine's testing found that they don't always detect partial blockages well. So make sure you clean your dryer's vent and duct, unplug the dryer, and turn off the gas valve to do that, all right? So to clean your dryer's vent and duct, unplug the dryer and turn off the gas valve, if applicable, then slide the dryer away from the wall. If you have a gas dryer, take care not to overstretch the gas line. Disconnect the duct from the dryer and vacuum both thoroughly. Also, clean behind and underneath the dryer. Lint builds up there too. 
In the wintertime, check to make sure snow isn't blocking the outdoor vent. All right, so that will do it for our laundry questions. So let us move on to the coronavirus questions. So uh, there were a plethora over the year, of course, but I just got the maybe the last two in the in the latest months. Uh, <clears throat> that is that is applicable because I think we've already know the answers to the other ones. So these are new ones that popped up. Will a regular flu shot help protect me against COVID-19? And Consumer Report Magazine answers, the flu shot won't protect you against COVID-19, for which there is no vaccine yet, although we've heard rumors that there are, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and also people have started taking the vaccine, uh, especially overseas. So, uh, but for 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 when this was written, uh, there was no vaccine yet. But a flu shot will cut your risk of getting the flu, which is particularly crucial this year. That's because there will be a substantial period of time when both flu and COVID-19 are circulating. Avoiding the flu will help uh, hospitals keep more beds and ventilators available for people with serious cases of COVID-19. While last year's flu shot was only, on average, 39% effective, getting the vaccine reduces your likelihood of becoming severely ill from the virus. There is also no evidence that getting a flu shot increases your risk of getting sick with COVID-19, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says. In fact, some early unpublished research suggests that those who get a flu shot are less likely to experience serious complications from COVID-19. If you haven't had your shot yet, don't delay. Colder weather means more time indoors in closer proximity to others, giving the flu virus more opportunity to spread. Many doctors' offices, walk-in clinics, and drugstores have procedures for giving flu shots quickly and safely during the pandemic, such as select hours for vaccines and drive-up flu shots. Call ahead to know what to expect and wear a mask. If you're 65 or older, ask your doctor about flu zone high dose designed to boost your immune system's response to the shot. And if you have or may have COVID-19, get your doctors okay before you go in for a flu shot. Okay, so another question is, can my steam mop kill the coronavirus? Consumer Report Magazine answers on some steam mop packaging. You may see claims such as eliminates 99.9% .9 of germs and bacteria. And it's true that heat and steam can kill pathogens, including the coronavirus. Most pathogens die at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, a temperature that Consumer Report testers have found steam mops can meet. But to be effective at killing a virus on most floors, you'll need to hold the mop in place on a surface for a few minutes at a time. And that's the catch. Steaming spots on your floor for that long can damage tile grout and crack wood floors. So I'm thinking that if you don't go through that, then no, it's not going to be effective at killing the coronavirus unless you... Um, keep the 
mop on the floor for a few minutes at a time, which will damage your floor. And then, you know, I don't know if that would be worth it, right? All right. There is a video called, What Would It Take to Reach Herd Immunity? And this was posted by the Wall Street Journal. So I was interested in learning, you know, seeing what they had to say about that. So let's go ahead and take a listen. We know that COVID-19 spreads through close contact, making crowded areas potentially deadly. But when some members of a crowd are immune, that begins to change. This is called herd immunity. It's what's protecting much of the population from diseases like measles and polio, and it's what's driving vaccine efforts today. The notion is there'll be enough people in that community who are immune so that when you go to pass the disease on, you won't be able to pass it on in a way that it will propagate. Economies around the world could then safely reopen, and some say it could put an end to the pandemic. But the path to herd immunity includes big hurdles, and experts say it could take years or more if we get there at all. We'll explain. When scientists want to determine how fast a virus might spread, they look at its reproduction number. This represents how many people could catch the virus from a single infected person when no one in the population is immune. That helps us to, to understand how much additional immunity or other measures do we need to implement in place to start to bring this epidemic under control as opposed to having it expand over time. For example, for the polio virus, one infected person will pass the disease to five to seven people on average. And from there, the disease will spread exponentially. For the novel coronavirus, scientists say an infected person will likely spread it to two to four other people. That number can go down as more people become immune or also in response to uh, measures like uh, wearing masks, social distancing. When enough people in a population gain immunity, the chances of infecting others goes down. And once it falls below a certain point, it becomes harder and harder for the virus to spread. As a result, the majority of the community becomes protected, not just those who are immune. Over time, the virus dissipates and really uh, essentially goes away or circulates at very low levels in that community. Scientists say there are two ways a population can reach herd immunity through broad infection or, more commonly, vaccination. To get there through infection, the majority of a population needs to get sick from a virus and develop molecular defenses like antibodies that fight off the disease. But this method would be deadly. Experts estimate that less than 5% of people worldwide have had COVID-19. Yet scientists say to reach herd immunity, that number would have to be between 60 and 70%. If we need to get to 60 or 70% infections, uh, that's obviously more than, you know, 4 billion people getting infected. Uh, that would be tens of millions of people dying. Uh, it would be hundreds of millions of people getting very, very sick. Uh, it would be devastating. It would be devastating for the entire global population, it would be devastating for the economies, and it is wholly unnecessary. There's also no guarantee that broad infection would lead to eradication. We don't have many examples of complete immunity to viruses through natural infection because people continue to get born in a population. So every year you have a new set of babies who are born and they're going to be susceptible to that infection. Experts say the more efficient way to herd immunity is through vaccination. 
That's how scientists eradicated smallpox. Because of vaccines, childhood mortality has dropped dramatically. Kids no longer die of measles. They don't die of uh, a lot of the, of the diseases that kids used to die of. Obviously, smallpox was one of the horrible scourges of humanity throughout the entire human history. Uh, we don't talk about smallpox anymore because, uh, because our vaccination campaign ultimately led to the eradication of smallpox. But experts say they don't know enough about the coronavirus to predict the likelihood of reaching herd immunity and that there are large barriers to getting there, even with a vaccine. One challenge is that scientists don't yet know how long natural immunity might last. There's a big difference between being immune for six months and being immune for 10 years. For other respiratory viruses like the flu, antibodies tend to decrease over time. Scientists have observed this in some patients recovering from COVID-19, but there isn't enough data yet to be certain about what that means for immunity. How long a COVID-19 vaccine will last is still unclear, but it may be measured in months or years rather than a lifetime. Another challenge, not all vaccines in development will work the same and their effectiveness could differ. The better a vaccine is in terms of the level of protection and the duration of protection, um, the, the further it gets you towards that point of, of herd immunity, right? But even a less than perfect vaccine, if given to enough people in the population, can help reduce the, the spread. Scientists are working quickly to test dozens of vaccines already in development, but it could take years to figure out which ones are more effective. So even if people get vaccinated, some could be more susceptible to catching the virus. But even as cases surge around the world, some experts are optimistic. We suspect that people who have gotten COVID-19 remain protected for, for many months at least because we haven't seen a large number of repeat infections. We also know that it's possible to give people multiple vaccinations. So I'm hopeful that we can develop uh, over time a vaccine that even if we do need to give multiple doses, will be highly effective in generating the, the levels of immunity that we need to, um, to beat this disease. If this happens, global herd immunity may be possible. But until then, health experts have stressed that measures like social distancing and wearing masks will be key to slowing down the spread. Okay, and so, you know, uh, there is a vaccine that is out. I, I hear that it's like two shots. I don't know how far apart the shots are. Um, so, you know, hopefully uh, that'll work for some people. And, um, you know, I just wonder what happens when COVID-20 comes out or COVID-21 comes out or 22, you know. <laughs> I don't even know how they number them, but... <laughs> But, you know, there could be different strains. And so, you know, are the, is the vaccines going to help for all these COVID? And what about new strains of something else that's new? I mean, we, we really haven't heard about this COVID before, have we? The coronavirus? Uh, I'm not sure. So, I don't know. Uh, it seems like you are, you know, kind of... Uh, putting the, you know, trying to close the doors after the horse is already gone. I don't know. Uh, so I guess we'll see what happens, you know. But uh, now we know we have to protect ourselves against uh, 
you know, some strange viruses now we've never had to encounter before. So, all right, so that'll do it for the coronavirus questions. But I do have other health questions that um, were asked to Consumer Report magazine, just general health questions. Um, the one thing that I wanted to play uh, was a audio from a video posted by Consumer Reports about five myths about antibiotics before I get into these other questions. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. Lauren Friedman, Consumer Reports health editor, says overuse of antibiotics is creating a health crisis. Antibiotics have helped cure infections for 75 years, but so much misuse and overuse has helped contribute to the spread of superbugs which are these infections that are very difficult to treat. We're even finding some infections that our strongest antibiotics cannot fight against. We're risking ending up in a time that resembles the time before we had antibiotics, where we have bacterial infections and we have nothing left to treat them. You can become part of the solution by knowing the truth behind these myths about antibiotics. Number one, they treat all infections. Antibiotics don't do anything if you have a viral infection or a fungal infection. And a lot of common infections, like colds and flus, are actually not caused by bacteria. So if you have a viral infection, antibiotics won't do anything. Myth number two, there's no downside to taking antibiotics. Antibiotics are life-saving and generally very safe, but they do have some downsides. Antibiotics can have side effects like nausea and vomiting, and very rarely things like nerve damage. Myth number three, a full course of antibiotics lasts at least a week. Sometimes you only need a few days of antibiotics. Always ask your doctor for the shortest course of antibiotics possible. Myth number four, killing more bacteria is always better. Not all bacteria is bad. Some bacteria is actually very important and can help your body run smoothly and help you digest your food. Many infections can be treated with a narrow-spectrum antibiotic, like penicillin. Ask your doctor if a narrow-spectrum antibiotic might work for your infection. And myth number five, taking leftover medication is all right. You should never take leftover medication. First of all, it's never okay to self-diagnose. You don't necessarily know what you have or if an antibiotic will help. If you have a viral infection, taking an antibiotic won't help you, and it could actually harm you. Even if you do have a bacterial infection, the antibiotic that you happen to have left over might not be the right type or the right dose. Always check with a doctor so that you can find out what type of bacteria you have and figure out which antibiotic is the best to treat it. Superbugs can affect us all, so it's important to be aware and involved. The number one thing you can do is not push your doctor to prescribe an antibiotic. If you are prescribed an antibiotic, ask, do I really need this antibiotic? If we follow this advice, we'll all be doing our part to help limit the spread of superbugs. So everything you wanted to know about antibiotics, antibiotics in about three minutes, posted by Consumer Reports. So if you want to take a listen to that again, it's five myths about antibiotics. 
All right, some more questions, general health questions that were posed on Consumer Report magazine. Is it really healthier to stand at my desk all day rather than sitting? Ergonomics experts now say that switching back and forth between sitting and standing is your best option. The main benefit of a standing desk is the ability to move. Aim for 10 minutes of standing and moving every half hour. To facilitate facilitate standing, you don't need to invest hundreds in a standing desk. A swing arm adapter which clamps to the back of an existing desk or table with either a shelf or your laptop or a mount for your monitor can be held, had for around $100. Just make sure it can lift high enough so that your screen is at eye level. Or use your laptop on a kitchen counter for short periods, even if that means your laptop screen isn't at eye level. It's okay to stand at your breakfast bar or kitchen island for just 15 minutes as a way to change positions. All right, here's another question. My doctor gave me a prescription for what he called an off-label use. Is that safe? Consumer Report Magazine answers, Legally, a doctor can prescribe a drug for a condition that the drug was not specifically approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat. For example, Neurentin, generic name gabapentin, is approved to treat epileptic seizures but is used off-label to treat nerve pain related to diabetes. In fact, going off-label is common. Between 12 and 38% of all prescriptions written in doctor's offices are for off-label uses, according to a 2019 Congressional Research Service report though it's illegal for a drug company to advertise off-label use. Only about a quarter of off-label prescribing is supported by strong scientific research, which is why the practice can be controversial. Why would your doctor do this? A drug is sometimes thought to be useful in treating conditions beyond what it was approved for. Getting FDA approval requires clinical trials to prove treatment for a specific condition, That can take years and often costs about $20 million per trial, so companies might not always seek approvals for additional conditions. An off-label prescription may make sense for you when no other available treatment works or when you're in a group that wasn't studied, for example, if a drug was approved for a specific age range only. Also, ask your doctor whether a drug he's prescribing is approved for your condition. All right, so another question, do I need to worry about ticks in winter? The answer is it depends on where you live. Many species of ticks that transmit diseases to humans in the U.S. tend to be inactive during the winter. But there are two key exceptions. The back-legged tick, a.k.a. deer tick, widely distributed across the eastern U.S. and its west coast cousin, the western back-legged tick. Both transmit Lyme disease and can be active in winter when temperatures rise above 35 degrees Fahrenheit and no snow is on the ground. Back-legged ticks can also carry a whole laundry list of other pathogens. 
While the risk of contracting a tick-borne illness is lower in winter than during the rest of the year, it's still important to take precautions such as spraying insect repellent on your boots and clothing when hiking or doing yard work. All right. So that's something I didn't know. I thought ticks, uh, you didn't have to worry about that in the winter time, but uh, I guess uh, you still have to uh, protect yourself. So here's another question. What's the best cold medicine? Consumer Report Magazine answers, drugstore shelves are lined with over-the-counter medications meant to ease cold and flu miseries. Fever, headache, congestion, running nose, body aches, cough, and more. But don't assume more is better. Why? Multi-symptom remedies contain several active ingredients, and the more active ingredients a a remedy has, the more likely it is you'll be exposed to unnecessary side effects. And unless you read the label carefully, you might not realize what's in it. For example, many multi-symptom products contain acetaminophen, the active ingredient in Tylenol. If you take acetaminophen in addition to a cold remedy that also contains it, you could get more than is safe. 4,000 milligrams per day or more can lead to liver damage. CR recommends that you opt for single ingredient products instead. Try acetaminophen or ibuprofen to subdue body aches and sore throats and a separate medicine for other symptoms such as cough or congestion. If you can't find the right items for all of your symptoms, use a combination drug that targets only the symptoms you have. Natural remedies can help too. Gargle salt water for a sore throat, take a steamy shower to ease congestion, And remember that chicken soup's power is not a myth. The warmth soothes your sinuses. All right, and then I have one more health question, but it's regarding uh, your pets. And the question is, do raw food diets keep dogs healthier longer? Consumer Report Magazine answers, raw food diets, which may contain raw organ meat, Unpasteurized milk or uncooked eggs are controversial, and many vets and public health agencies warn against them. While some experts believe that dogs and cats won't get sick from these raw diets because animals are biologically equipped to consume raw meats, other experts say these diets are not nutritionally balanced and, beyond that, can be a source of harmful bacteria that can cause foodborne illness to pets and their people. Animals can easily transfer the bacteria to humans by, say, licking their faces after eating. Also, owners should use extra caution when preparing raw food for a pet. You can easily get sick if you touch your mouth after being in contact with contaminated food, surfaces, or utensils. All right, so that'll do it for the health questions. Now, I have a couple of questions for... um, Well, actually, I guess it's one question. (laughs) How can I protect my home security cam from hackers? News stories about home security cameras getting hacked have become all too common. One way such cameras are vulnerable to hacks is through a technique called credential stuffing. 
Hackers take usernames and passwords pilfered from data breaches such as Equifax data breach and use them to try to access other accounts. These hackers are hoping that you've reused a password on multiple accounts such as your home security camera account. Hackers' chances of success are decent. 52% of nearly 30 million internet users have reused or modified passwords according to a Virginia Tech analysis. And in a nationally representative CR survey on data privacy conducted in April 2019, 13% of respondents with online accounts said they used the same password on all accounts. That makes it a cinch for hackers to gain access. To stay protected, keep your camera's firmware updated. Look for an update button under the settings menu in a camera's app. Also, uh, always create unique passwords and set up two-factor authentication when possible. Several major security cam brands, including Arlo, Google Nest, and Ring, offer this crucial extra protection. So let's uh, go ahead and listen to what Consumer Reports uh, can add to that in their uh, uh, video, Security Systems 101. So let's take a listen. Dan, you have such a beautiful home. Thank you. A nice weekend at the lake house is exactly what I need. Oh, I'm glad. The key's over there on the bookcase, and I think that's everything. Okay, thanks. Hey, what exactly is that thing on the door? Oh, I almost forgot. That's the security system. Let me show you how it works. Oh, sure. Makes sense that a Consumer Reports home editor would have a self-installed system in his house. Yeah, this is actually a door sensor, and there are also sensors on the windows in the house. Oh. I can show you. So this is the window sensor right here, Jack. Oh, so if you open up the window, the alarm will go off. Exactly. Ah, by the way, you did this all by yourself? Yeah, it was really easy. You just peel and stick and put the sensors where you want them. What are they interconnected to? All the sensors interconnect to a base station, which I can show you right over here. Oh, yeah, sure. So this is the base station, Dan? Yes, this is the brains of the security system. Oh, okay, okay. And Dan says these brains connect to your home's Wi-Fi network. They usually feature a built-in siren as well as backup cellular connectivity in case you lose power or there's an internet outage. Oh, that's a nice handy thing to have. Yeah, definitely. To arm or disarm the system, you just enter the code on the keypad or you use the key fob. You can actually just arm and disarm the system with a tap. Oh, that's it? That easy? Yeah, that easy. Okay, nice. What else do I need to know, Dan? So one of the great things about these new DIY systems is they connect to your phone. They'll actually send an alert to your phone when the alarm goes off. The only problem with that is if you miss a notification, you might miss someone breaking into your house. Oh, no. Dan, after everything you've been telling me, I think I might want to buy one. What do I look for? We test a lot of these, and we find that the most important thing to consider is whether or not you want a system that'll contact the authorities. Right. We think it's best to go for a system where you can sign up for optional monitoring, Mm. because you will always have that option down the road if you want to be able to have the authorities respond for police or fire. The other important thing you need to know is that these systems usually only come with a handful of motion and contact sensors, Mm -hmm. and you often need more. So you want to look at the prices of those before you commit. Most of these systems start at around two, three, four hundred dollars, but in reality, you could spend over a thousand dollars once you add in all these sensors and security cameras and extras. 
then what's the difference between a DIY and a professional installation? For a professionally installed system, there's usually upfront equipment and installation costs, right. as well as a recurring monthly charge of around $40 a month. And you're usually locked into a contract for multiple years. How easy is it to install this? Because I'm not the handiest guy around. It's actually really easy to install, Jack, and the app will even walk you through all of the instructions. All right, Jack, you good? I'm good. After everything you explained to me, I think I'm solid. All right. Well, I will give you this, okay. and I hope you have a good weekend. All right. Hey, by the way, thank you so much for everything again, Dan. I Anytime. really appreciate it. I'll see you in a few days. All right. Take it easy, Dan. You too. Bye, Jack. Bye. <sighs> and now to get this weekend started. <laughs> Security alert. Security alert. Security alert. Security. Sorry, Jack. Dan! I thought you left! I forgot my wallet. So there you go, everything you need to know about security systems and also how not to have uh, anybody try to hack into them. Yeah, uh, it's so important to make sure that you do not use the same passwords for everything, you know, um, especially on your most important accounts because, uh, you know, if they can get one of those passwords, they can get passwords to almost everything. So just be careful in the passwords uh, that you use for anything, for your security uh, camera, anything, right? So just a word of caution. All right. So I think we're ending the, well, we're nearing the end of the show. So, if you have any questions or comments that you have heard today on the show about any of the questions that we posed and the answers, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at uh, gmail.com. Yes, I should know my own email, right? <laughs> consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at consumerreviewreport and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any uh, products or services that you would like to hear about on the show or you have questions about any products or services, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at consumerreviewreport and on Twitter at Twitter. I mean Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So, this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. Heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. Podcasts of these shows are available on WMCK.FM slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. 
So, I'm Diane Rebecca, wishing everyone a safe and good week, and also a very, very happy new year.